Hi, Pastor Mike Fabara is here. In August 2024, you're invited to join me on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. Delve into God's Word while taking in the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. I assure you that if you could kick envy, you'd look back and say, well, I lived the last season of my life without any envy. I saw that go away. That would be profitable and excellent. That'd be like so good for you. I mean, it would help you in your homes. It would help you in your small groups, help you in your church, help you in your extended family. Some of you help you in your immediate family. It would help you in your neighborhoods. It would help you in your workplace. It would help you in your headspace. It would just help you. It would be excellent and profitable. The first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. But in order to be successful, you'll need to rely on supernatural strength. And the same is true in our struggle against sin. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares reveals why we need the Holy Spirit to defeat a powerful enemy called envy. I'm Dave Drury. We're starting in Luke 14.3 with a parable from Jesus about a king preparing for battle. Now here's Pastor Mike with part one of a message called Getting Serious About the Counterattack. Jesus once employed a military illustration in Luke chapter 14, verse 31, and I can summarize his illustration in one sentence. It is, don't be a fool to get in a fight you can't win. <laughs> don't be a fool to get in a fight you can't win. That's what he said. If there's a 20,000-member army that you're overseeing and an army's coming against you with 20,000 men, you better sit down first and figure this out. And if you can't do it, then you shouldn't get into the fight. If you went to a junior high like mine, that's good advice. I lived by that in junior high. Um, if you could choose whether to fight or not, you uh, certainly wanted to assess that you had a chance to actually win. And sometimes uh, if you had a choice, you might just want to put it off for a semester or two until you put on some weight or spent the summer in the garage lifting weights. But some battles you just can't fight, so you had to just kind of give in, right? Had to call for terms of peace, as he goes on to say in verse 32. And um, in junior high, that meant you'd be that guy's slave for a while, right? You'd uh, have to do whatever the bully tells you to do. I know that um, in this series on envy, uh, perhaps you've been uh, renewed in your resolve to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this sin. And it is a sin, and it's a big sin. As a matter of fact, the church historically called it one of the seven deadly sins because uh, they were concerned about sins that were the root of a lot of other kinds of sins. And this, in particular, is one of those. Envy is the cause of a bunch of other sins that we have in our lives. It brews this resentment and this frustration over the fact that other people have blessings and advantages that you don't have. And it turns into all kinds of things, gossip and criticism and backbiting and factions and all the way to our first encounter with it, at least in the book of Genesis, and that is that Cain rises up to kill his brother Abel because he's envious. Maybe you've said, well, I'm going to fight this thing in my life. Pastor Mike, you've given me some good tools to do that. But I'd want to warn you that it looks a lot easier on a Sunday morning in a sermon than it does throughout the week, and you may have already figured that out. You may figure, like, I'm trying, but I'm getting, I'm getting pummeled in this. I put it down on a Tuesday, and by Thursday it's back, and you may find that this kind of fight is one that you're tempted to call a truce and ask for terms of peace and just kind of live under the 
subjection of this recurring sin in your life. Well, I tried and I can't seem to kick it. Well, I advise you not to do that. And I'll tell you that even though I gave you instructions, it really is the linchpin to this whole thing. And I said last time we were together, if you were to put these things into practice, to know the emerging desires and cravings of your life, when you identify those that are starting with coveting and leading to envy, that you would learn to love with a genuine Christian love and you would genuinely see other people's interests as above your own and you could genuinely bless them when they are blessed, that you would rejoice with them when they were, I mean, that would be it. And I told you that multiple times last time. I said, this is it. You do this and you will kick this thing called envy. Now, while you know the instructions and the solution, you may not have the wherewithal to make it happen. And I would tell you that you need to get that wherewithal to make it happen because you don't want to live under the subjection of the bully that is envy. And the way to do that is to make sure that we have a stronger army than what's on the other side. What we need to do, like the captain in the illustration in Luke 14, uh, if you've got 10,000 and he's coming against you with 20,000, I would say you should go out and start recruiting more soldiers. You better figure out how to get a stronger army together to fight this. In our case, I want to give you the instructions that will give you the wherewithal to employ the solutions to have this thing actually happen to where you live the rest of your Christian life with a whole lot less envy. While it'll be a fight, and there's always some bruises and cuts when you get in a fight, you can win this fight and you can win it consistently. What you need is found in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'd like to start here. Ezekiel 36 is the answer, at least the descriptive answer, of what you will need to be successful in your fight against this sin and any other sin whether it's lust or pride or gossip or whatever it might be, envy in particular, it's an insidious sin, a powerful sin, you can defeat it if this is true of you. Let's start here in verse 25. And this sounds like something I would hope most of you think, well, this is true of me. Verse 25 is all about forgiveness. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses, as odd as that word sounds, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. God says, I'm going to have a a cleansing of your life. And he illustrates it with the sprinkling of of clean water, and it's going to clean you. And anything that falls short of God's standard or glory, I'm I'm going to eradicate it from your resume. You'll be clean. Well, that sounds good. I think I'm forgiven. I've learned about it in church. I I mean, I've responded to that in some way. I've prayed a prayer. I've you know, I've said I want that, and I suppose that's all you need to do because God's a pretty generous God, and he'll do that. Well, if he has done that, he also does this. There's an and here, starting verse 26. To the people that he forgives, right? he gives them a, a new heart. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Now, there's a small s on that because the context distinguishes what he's doing here in the interior of your life to what he's about to talk about in the next verse, in verse 27. And that one has a capital S on it because we're talking about God's spirit. But this is your spirit, and you have a spirit, you have a heart, you have the interior control center of your life, and it's going in a particular direction from birth. The Bible says that's a direction that's the wrong direction. It's a self-absorbed direction. It's a direction that will never allow you to genuinely love people the way that Christ did, which means you're putting their interests before your own. You're genuinely seeing them as more valuable than yourself. And people do not do that because we're all aligned in the interior of our lives to put ourselves first. That's the way we're designed. Not just to look out for our interests, but to look out for our interests in a supreme way. We're not going to let anything get in the way of that. Even the choices that we make that look sacrificial, the discipline or whatever it might be, ultimately are about advantaging 
me. And there's a lot of people that do a lot of things for other people that are ultimately about themselves. A lot of people say a lot of things that seem really nice and compassionate, but they're ultimately about themselves. And so it is that the interior of our lives is moving in the wrong direction. What we need is a new heart, a new spirit. We need it to be different. And it says God's going to do that within a person who is forgiven. Right? God forgives them and gives them a new heart, new spirit. And that will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Now, if your heart is stone, you're dead. Right? I mean, that's the problem. Your heart, the interior of your heart, to illustrate this with a body, right, you need your heart to be beating and pumping oxygen and blood through your body. So that's very important. And the problem is the people that are dead to God, as it's put in Ephesians chapter 2, right, they don't have an interest in God. They say they might. They might talk about God, but they don't really care about God and say that I care about God as God. And God as God means that God is, is God. He's ultimate. He's supreme. They're not interested in his agenda. They're really interested, first and foremost, in their own agenda. And so they don't have a heart that is alive to God, to use the phrase there in Ephesians chapter 2. But God says, I'm going I'm to change all that. I'm going to take out that heart that's dead to me, and I'm going to give you, within your flesh, your body, I'm going to give you a heart that's real, that's fleshly, that, that's going to beat, right? Now, it's not a term that's negative. In this case, it's a term that's positive because it's standing in contradistinction to a heart of stone. And if your heart is stone, you'd like a heart that's made of flesh. So here's a good example of the fact that you're dead to God, now all of a sudden you're alive to God. You have an interest in God. You have an interest in the things that are important to God. You want to adopt his agenda. You care about him. You care about what he thinks. You care about his honor and his glory and his dominion and all the things that Christians should and every person should care about. But now all of a sudden you do care about it. Not from the outside in. Not by hearing people say things and you go, well, that sounds reasonable. I agree with that. But on the interior of what you core desire, what your core desires are, you say, I, I want that. I really do want that. That's all sounding good. Sounds like I might be able to do the right things if I desire to do the right things. If I'm forgiven of all the failures in my past. But here's the real kicker, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you. Now, who's talking here? God, the thrice holy God of Isaiah 6. The God who dwells in unapproachable light. First Timothy chapter 6. The one who has all power, the almighty God. The God who is perfect, who sets the standard, who himself is the moral standard of all things. That God will put himself, right? Here's the analogy, within you. So my heart now, the core of who I am, the way I think, the way I value, the way I prioritize, it all is now interested in God's agenda. And that is like me drawing near to God. And when we do that, God says, now I'm going to draw near to you, to use the terms of James chapter 4. And now how near to me is he? He now takes his interest and his desires and his concerns and his agenda, and he brings it right inside. Now, this is something it's alien to me and that I'm not the spirit, right? I am my own spirit. I am my own mind. I'm my own heart. But God now says, I'm going to take my heart, my mind, my spirit. I'm going to put that there within you. And when I do, right, you want to talk about success. Here it comes. And I'm going to cause you. There's a big phrase. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. Walk, right? That analogy of living and making your pattern of life. I'm going to cause your pattern of life to be such that you're aiming toward and succeeding in doing what my statutes, my precepts, my, my requirements, my instructions are. And you will be, right now your heart is in sync with my heart, your spirit's in sync with my spirit, my spirit's drawing near to you, you're drawing near to me, and in that symbiotic relationship here, right, new heart, spirit of God within me, I'm going to make you careful to obey my rules. You can sit through a lot of sermons, hear a lot of church, and you hear things that might agree with your thinking. You think that's logical, that sounds good. 
and I'm going to do that. I'm going to choose to do that. I'm going to resolve to go toe-to-toe against this corruptive sin, this deadly sin of envy. And You go out there and you try to scrap with this sin and you feel like, yeah, I'm just no match for it. I'm getting pummeled. I'm getting beaten. And all I'm telling you is you want to win this fight? I mean, winning is right there in verse 27. Winning against sin, against disregarding his statutes, his rules, his commands, right? Winning is found here. If the Spirit of God is within you, driving you, pushing you, or here's the word, causing you to walk in that pattern, well, then I think you're going you're gonna to win. You're going to have anything against you? Well, plenty. You got the whole culture against you. You got your flesh that's still wired to do whatever it wants to do. You have uh, Satan out there tempting you. All of that's true. So we've got an enemy, the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. No doubt about that. But you're going to have success because the core of your desires and the God of the universe is going to come and say, I'm going to now reside within you and I'm going to move you. I'm going to cause you to keep my precepts and to be careful to obey my rules. That's a big, big deal. And that means success. And I'm concerned in a group this size that there are plenty of you that will probably hear from God one day, depart from me, I never knew you. You will go through your quote-unquote Christian life, which is nothing more than an external adherence to a community of people who are Christians, most of them, and you will not become a Christian. You will just agree with the stuff that's taught, well, whenever you do agree with it. And you will get to the end and you'll realize, I tried to do all of this stuff and I, I was hit and miss on kind of applying all the messages. But you were never really, as we say in the New Testament, regenerate. You were never made new. You were never, as Jesus put it to Nicodemus, who knew the Bible really well and tried to keep the Bible's commands, you were never born again. That's what you need. What does that mean? The Spirit of God changes who you are, forgives you of your sins. Those are the three verses. Verse 25, forgiveness. Verse 26, new heart, new interior. Verse 27, Spirit of God invade your life. That all happens at one point. And some of you think agreeing with the facts is when that happens. That's not when this happens. What we need is the Spirit of God residing in us. Let's just jot that down, and then I'd like to show you a passage that may help even more. Number one, you need to make sure God's Spirit resides in you. You want the wherewithal to win this fight against envy or any other sin. You need God's Spirit in you. Because then you'll get that promise of that wonderful verse, God's Spirit will cause you to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. That'll be more and more the pattern and trajectory of your life. Let me take you to Titus chapter 3. If you've been following through this series, I've quoted that many times. And let's start in the passage I've often quoted, because it has in the middle of it the word envy. And the word envy is the problem. And as a matter of fact, it's the characteristic of a life without God's spirit in it. Look at how it's described here. Titus chapter 3, verse number 3. Let's start there and then read a little bit more than we normally read, at least as we've quoted it in the past. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. He's looking back now at a life, as Paul said, who I was before I became a Christian. And it was, it was foolish. It was disobedient. It was a life, he says, we, right? Now he's including Titus in this, who's a pastor at this point. Well, before you became a Christian, you were disobedient. You were led astray. You were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Even if you wanted to in your own mind, as Paul says to the Romans, he says, you know, when I heard that coveting was wrong and God said, don't covet. Now, all of a sudden, now I was aware of the battle and I kept losing the battle. It was like it just stirred up a lot of, of knowledge of how I was getting pummeled and beaten by this thing not to covet. I was just all about these desires to covet what I didn't have. Enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days and the expression of the kinds of passions that are against God's rules and precepts are you have malice, you have envy, hated by others and hating one another. Why? Because everyone's looking out for themselves. Everyone's trying to take these cravings and, and fulfill them. 
when it comes to my status or my position or my, my stuff or my possessions, whatever. We wanted more of that. We just wanted to get for ourselves. And all of that is what characterizes a non-Christian life. But the Spirit of God is going to change that for people. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. I finally tried to apply enough of the sermons about coveting or envy or strife or whatever it might be, and I, I, I made good progress. My batting average was good one season, and God all of a sudden said, you've qualified. You can now be on the team. It's not what happened. He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That means someone that just doesn't deserve it. Can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't just try and do good enough by his mercy. He has to save us by the washing of regeneration. That's the word. That means being born again. Regeneration and the renewal. What's that? That's the passage we just read, Ezekiel 36. A new heart, new spirit. The renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's come in. He changes us. He resides within us. Who, by the way, how much spirit do you get? Poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that now, here's what Christianity spells, being justified by his grace. You didn't deserve it. It was merciful. It was gracious. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When did that happen? At the moment of our justification. When God declared us righteous. When he said, all your sins. Right There's the beginning of our passage in Ezekiel 36, 25. Your sins are forgiven. The cleansing of the pure water on you. It's, it's, it's this picture of cleansing. The washing regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us richly in Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying, verse 8, is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Titus is a preacher on the island of Crete. He says, I want you to go out there and preach this stuff so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things, these good works, are excellent and profitable for people. I assure you that if you could kick envy, you'd look back and say, well, I lived the last season of my life without any envy. Right? I saw that go away. That would be profitable and excellent. That'd be like so good for you. I mean, it would help you in your homes. It would help you in your small groups, help you in your church, help you in your extended family. Some of you help you in your immediate family. It would help you in your neighborhoods. It would help you in your workplace. It would help you in your headspace. It would just help you. It would be excellent and profitable. But what needs to happen for you to get from verse 3 right, to verse 8 is that you have to have an encounter with God's Spirit. And that was really defined in verse number 8 when it says you need to instruct these things, insist on these things, so that those who believe in God. Ah, see, there you go. I, I, that's me. Do you? Because some people read that and they think, believe God. I believe God. I believe. I believe. I believe there's a God. I believe that he revealed himself in the Bible. I believe that he sent Jesus to die for my sin 2,000 years. I believe that. I believe it. That's what faith is. Faith is believing. And I believe. And James would tell you in James chapter 2, well, even the demons believe that's not what believing is. That is not what the word faith is all about. You want a word that's going to help you, then make sure you read the word that's stuck between believe and God. It's the word in. And the word in changes everything about that phrase. To believe God is one thing. And there are people going to hell, sitting in church this morning, who are going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. And they practice lawlessness because the Spirit of God is not in their life, and the Spirit of God is not in their life because they believe God, but they don't believe in God. And that's a radical, cataclysmic difference. That's so, so different. Demons believe God. Matter of fact, their theology is so good, they don't need another sermon. They don't need to take our theology classes. They don't need to go to CBI. They know all the theology, and it's better than your theology, and they believe it. They have no doubt 
When you're doubting some things in theology, they don't doubt it because they know it. They know it firsthand. But they do not believe in God. They do not trust in God. It's those who know that they're sinners, admit their sin, confess their sin, repent of their sin. They trust in God to forgive their sins. And then they get a new heart. They get the spirit of God in them. And then they say, I want to go out and do what God asks me to do, which is where this goes. The excellent and profitable things are the things that I desire to do. How much do I desire? We'll go back to chapter 2 of Titus. Look at the last part of of this passage. The grace of God. Let's look at verse 11 of Titus 2. It's appeared. It brings salvation for all people. Well, that's what I've done. I believe God and I'm saved. Well, are you? Because that faith, that grace, that I trust in God's provision, that grace of salvation, what does it do? Well, it trains us, verse 12, to renounce ungodliness. How are you doing on that? worldly passions, and live self-control. That means you're winning some battles here, consistently winning battles. Upright and godly lives, even in a cruddy place like Crete in the first century, in the present age. And we can transfer that right to our age, the 21st century in America. Waiting for, that's what people do, have the Spirit of God. They can't wait for the arrival of the King. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself, cleansing these people, right? A people for his own possession. And here's what they do. They're moved to keep his precepts. They walk according to his rules. They obey his rules. They're zealous for that. Why? Because the spirit of God has fueled them because their spirit is new and they're going to have success. They're zealous for good works. I know this is hard stuff, but I'm told to tell you this, verse 15, just to reflect a little bit of a verse that's for pastors and preachers. Verse 15 is to a preacher on Crete in an island where they're not going to applaud him for saying it, but he needs to say it, and the gender people are going to say amen to it, but he's got to say these things, declare them and exhort them and rebuke them with all authority, and he can't let anyone sit there and make him say, well, maybe you're right. Say it with all authority and don't let anyone disregard you. You will not get me to disregard what I'm telling you this morning, that you are a sinner and you will go to hell unless you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in God. Put all of your eggs in one basket. Recognize his lordship and the greatness of who God is because the spirit of God then will train you and move you to obey what he has said. That's legalism. It's not legalism. It's the gospel. The gospel of grace trains you to do this. You're listening to Focal Point and a message from Pastor Mike Fabares called Getting Serious About the Counterattack. And in this series, we're learning about the destructive impact of envy. Now, if you missed any of the previous messages, you can easily go back and listen online at focalpointradio.org. And when you're online, check out the free resources available to you. Our site is packed with tools to elevate your personal Bible study. From the weekly devotional to Ask Pastor Mike archives, you'll find a wealth of solid biblical wisdom at your fingertips. And it's free. We don't hide our resources behind a paywall, despite the substantial costs of running this ministry. Focal Point is entirely funded by people, just like you, who value the teaching on this program and want to share God's truth with as many people as possible. So to encourage you to join a growing group of faithful friends who support this program, this month when you donate, we'll send you a copy of Pastor Mike's latest book, Envy, A Big Problem You Didn't Know You Had. In his brand new book, Mike shares his findings about an insidious problem that attacks all of us and is damaging society at large. But it's a problem most people don't even recognize. 
As you read, you'll gain a deeper capacity for selfless biblical love, and that's something we all need. So request your copy of Envy when you donate to Focal Point today by calling 888-320-5885 or donate online at focalpointradio.org. And if you're not quite ready to give just yet, we'd still like to hear from you. This month, we have a free gift for listeners who contact Focal Point. It's a CD copy of Pastor Mike's message called Envy, A Private But Disruptive Sin. So contact us today at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for a special two-part message called A Thankful Thanksgiving. That's coming up Wednesday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. I pray today's message will help you live out your faith with truth and love. After all, that's the kind of biblical faith that changes lives and transforms a crooked culture. But if you haven't truly surrendered your life to Christ, then I'd like to invite you to get in touch. We'd love to pray with you and help you discover God's plan of salvation. Visit focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.